be here with you again this morning and to be able to share with you from the Word of God um, a couple of kind of introductory notes that, uh, that I would just like to make as we get started this morning. I've left you some sermon notes, but they're kind of unorthodox sermon notes because they're blank. And, uh, and the comments at the beginning really emphasize something I'd like to kind of bring to our thoughts as we begin listening to a service. Someday I'd like to put together a message that's on how to listen to a message. Uh, but, um, but this morning I'm just going to give you a couple of thoughts because we have much other material that we'd like to cover and other things that we'd like to talk about this morning. One of the things as we listen to messages is uh, it's easy to kind of get caught in trying to identify what the main points of the speaker happen to be. And hopefully you'll see those. I mean, I hope it's going to be clear and that won't be muddy this morning. But what we really want to be doing is listening to far more than a person who's standing up front. We want to be listening to the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit has certain things he wants to say to you today. Because it's his word and he wants to minister it to you. So those sermon notes are mostly blank. For you to be able to jot down possibly things, you know, it could be something that I didn't even say. It could reference a scripture that I never mentioned, but that God brought to your mind as you listened. So this morning, as you partake in the message, it's really not just about copying down my outline. You can do that if you like. Maybe it helps you. It can be a mnemonic device to be able to remember it better if that's really important to you. But most importantly, and I hope, my desire this morning is that you're not just listening to me. I'm really not that good to listen to. But the Holy Spirit is very very apt at speaking to us, and every word he says is fully worth listening to. So with that, I'd like us to bow in prayer and ask that the Holy Spirit would do just that as we talk about a slightly different version of the Christmas story this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would minister to us as we've gathered this morning. Your word always applies. Your word is always true. Your word always meets us at the place of our greatest need. I don't know the needs here this morning, not all of them, but you do. And you know the ins and outs, the light sides and the dark sides of every one of those situations. You know each circumstance. So our desire, our request, is that your Holy Spirit would go to work through your word as we share in it this morning to minister at the places of greatest need. So we ask you, please speak Please speak by your word to us and help us to hear for Jesus' sake. Amen. This morning, I would like to take you to the first chapter in the book of John. If you turn there, uh, you'll notice that it's not the standard Christmas story. Really, the, the way we normally think of the Christmas story would be from Matthew or from Luke. And uh, Matthew, he tells the story of Jesus' birth. And he traces his lineage, Jesus' lineage, through that genealogy that you find there, all the way back to Abraham, identifying some very important features about who Jesus is by virtue of his connection to the father of the Jewish race. Luke, on the other hand, starts a little bit earlier than Matthew did and starts with John the baptizer's birth and all that took place surrounding John the baptizer's birth. And then he traces his lineage yet further back. Where Matthew stopped with Abraham, we find that Luke traces Jesus' lineage all the way to Adam, all the way to the very first man in a very important uh, pre presentation of the Lord Jesus as the second Adam. 
But John, John tells the story of the word of God beginning kind of in the middle with his ministry to the people that he came to speak to. And he traces his lineage. He doesn't trace his lineage. He doesn't trace his lineage at all. He simply asserts that this word is God. He was before Abraham, and he created Adam. Without him was not anything made that was made. We'll see in verse 3 of this chapter. Christmas, really, in that sense, from John's perspective, has always been in the mind of God. And now, in the fullness of time, God speaks to us his last best word. The word in the beginning, John says in verse 1 of this chapter, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, verse 3, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Really what we hear is a very interesting parallel through this chapter with two other portions of scripture. You may have them come to your mind. One is another letter that John wrote. In 1 John chapter 1, John begins with the same theme. He's very, he's very consistent. He says, that which we have heard from the beginning, which we, was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John begins there also in the beginning, but there's another very important in the beginning that we think of probably more frequently than 1 John when we think of the opening portion of the book of John. Do you know what it is? In the beginning, John says, was the word. But long before, Moses said, in the beginning, God. It's an important parallel because what we find John doing is lining up an exact symmetry with what Moses had said before to emphasize the fact that this person that he's speaking of, this word, is in fact God himself, the creator. So in the beginning, Moses says, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, in the emptiness of time and the void of space, God did something. He spoke. God spoke. And so we find John identifying that this speaking God, this self-revealing God, is the Word. So he says, in the beginning was the Word. God spoke. Why, why the Word? Well, first of all, because he's the creator. Think of it. When God spoke in the very beginning, what was there besides God? It was empty, void, dark. And so into that emptiness, God spoke, and by his speech, he created. But yet more, this idea of word, which is in the Greek, logos, could actually be translated speech. So we're looking here and saying in the beginning was the speech. In the beginning was the speech. When you speak, what do you tell us about you? In fact, let me ask it a different way. Can anyone else speak your words for you? You may have had someone try and put words in your mouth. That's a little differently. But 
but can anyone else speak your words for you? No, you alone can speak your words, and your words, Jesus tells us, are a revelation of what is in your heart. It's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So when God speaks, what do we get to hear? We get to hear the very heart of God. In the very beginning, God spoke, and, and interestingly enough, we'll get this in a few minutes as we look further into this chapter, but what's the very first thing God speaks? Let there be light. We're going to come to that in John chapter 1. So what's the very first thing that God wants to do? He creates light, manifesting his own glory, his own likeness, his own character, something that is in the nature of himself. So Jesus, we're hearing from John, is the very speech of God. He's the expression of the will and mind and heart of God. He is the revelation of his power. So why the word? Because God wanted to show us exactly who he is. What better way than by the very word of God which shows to us the heart of God in the flesh. That's what Christmas is about. Finding out who God is as he is expressed through the word of God, Jesus himself. When God speaks, it's interesting, if you go back to the book of Genesis, you find that every time God spoke, exactly what he said came to pass. You never find that there was like, ooh, um, boy, the light was kind of slow showing up on the scene that time. Or, boy, the animals were not quite ready there. No, God speaks. It comes to pass when God spoke he always brought to pass that which never before existed. And in this case, in John, he is bringing to pass something new. Something that's never been done before. As we find God in the flesh, the very word, the expression of the heart of God to us. John asserts that this creator God, this word by which the world was made, is Jesus. In the beginning was the word the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the book of Proverbs, we find that Solomon takes yet a little different twist on this, and he says in Proverbs chapter 8, I, wisdom, and then some other things, he says, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. Jesus, we find here, personified as wisdom himself. In this case, Solomon actually used a female uh, portrayal of wisdom. But we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that Paul tells us that Jesus is, in fact, the wisdom of God. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. At the beginning, what was at the beginning? It was God himself, the wisdom of God. It was Jesus who is God's very wisdom. When God wanted to speak to us, when God wanted to speak to us, the unutterable depths, the unplumbable realities of his nature and his character. When he wanted to show us what his heart is for us, he spoke to us the very wisdom of God in his son. Sometimes I think we might get tempted to say perhaps there could have been a better plan. Perhaps God could have done this a different way. 
there maybe would have been some other possibility that God, you know, in his infinite wisdom, I mean, he cre- decided to create this whole place in the, first t- in the first place, right? And so why would he do such a thing? We don't have all the answers to that. But we do know this. It is in perfect accord with his wisdom. If, if there was any if statement in all of the universe, this was the perfect answer. This was the best possible way. This was the wisest possible course. This was the only way, the only way in which God could make himself known. He's the word. He reveals himself to us. The wisdom of God, he is. The divine reason, that is Jesus. The word made all things. Without him, nothing was made. Inherent in this truth is something that can easily go unnoticed. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Now, let me help you understand that. Look at that first verse of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We can all agree, I think, that this asserts that Jesus is deity, that he's God. Now, step into the position of those who would have been reading this in John's day. Who would they have known this God to be? Well, there only is one God. He is the very God that we see revealed in the Old Testament. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. He is not the point man for a new way to God that never before existed. He's not trying to start a new religion. This is the revelation of the God. I was talking to a gentleman about a week ago who was really struggling with this differentiation between the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament like they were two different deities, like they were two separate beings. They are not. John writes, this is God come in the flesh manifesting the very heart of God for you. Jesus is the counsel of God, fulfilled in time and space. He's the thoughts of God enacted in speech. He is the invisible God dressed, in a sense, in street clothes. This is what Jesus taught. And the leaders, the religious leaders, understood exactly what he was saying. That's that's why they wanted him dead. In John 5.18, we see that This was why the Jews, it says, were seeking all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath in that particular one-time incident, but even because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They knew what he was saying. John 19, 7 through 8, at at the very end, prior to the crucifixion, the Jews said, we have a law. And according to that law, he, Jesus, ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. John established Jesus from his opening line that he is deity. So why is this so important? In in Hebrews chapter 1, we find the theme takes yet another turn. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. God spoke, and he made the world. God spoke, and the prophets were his mouthpiece, his representatives. God spoke now, in these last days, by his son. He is the heir of all things, and the one who made the world. In Colossians, we find that Paul picks up the discourse. He, Jesus, 
is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It's important to note in this passage of Scripture, we see that uh, Paul uses the word firstborn to describe Jesus. That's not because he had a beginning. The idea of firstborn is meaning that he's the substance or he's the foundation of all things. So to put it another way, we're saying that Jesus shows us God because he is his image. To be the image of something is the exact imprint. That's the way Hebrews puts it. He's the exact imprint. You couldn't get a closer image to God. Jesus perfectly shows us the Father. Another way to say it is that Jesus is the perfect exegesis of the Father. And then it is also he who is the maker of all things. That's because he's firstborn. He's the foundation, the substance of all things. He's the firstborn. And so Christmas, from John's perspective here, in John chapter 1, is not just about a baby born to a virgin mother or a manger in a crowded town or an angelic choir saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. It was all that. But it was so much more. It was the enactment of the eternal plan of God. It was God speaking into his world again, this time not by the fallible mouthpiece of prophets, but by God's incarnate Son, God in the flesh. This word, this creator of the universe, entered his own creation as a man in order to speak to men God's own voice. And by that voice to create out of the void of our hopelessness, of our darkness, what could never be created in any other way. A people born of God. In the darkness, God spoke. And whatever he spoke came to be in the very beginning. Here in John, we find that God speaks again. This time to create something out of an impossible situation. Out of the darkness of our own sin. Remaking, making a people for God. So Christmas is really about a new creation. But it's a much more difficult, costly creation than that first creation. It's hard for me to grasp a God whose plan is so great as to create the world in the first place. So think about it. Stooping over a little heap of dust, he fashioned the eyes that would lust for the forbidden fruit. By his hand, he fashioned the hand that would reach out to take it. He formed the mouth that would long for its forbidden pleasure. But he did it. And he did it in love that he might do something yet more amazing than make a world from nothing. Is, how could it be more, how, what could be more amazing than making a world out of nothing? And yet he made a world out of nothing for the very purpose of doing something yet more incredible. Hebrews 11 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. That's a step of faith, but there's yet a greater faith to come. 
In John 1, God did something more astounding than speak a world into existence from nothing. He spoke to make a world of nothings into the very children of God. A God who would create the world knowing the cost is astounding. A God who would create anew, paying the price, is beyond comprehension. In the beginning was the Word. He was, in fact, the seed of Abraham, the Jew no Jew could ever hope to be, the perfect lawgiver, the only one who kept the law perfectly. He's the royal heir of David, the only one with the right to sit on David's throne to rule the nations with a rod of iron. He is Adam's son, the son of man, true man sent to redeem, the only one who could substitute his real blood for our real sin. He is God. He's the one whose day Abraham rejoiced to see, for before Abraham was, Jesus said himself, I am. He's David's son, but David's Lord. He's Adam's maker, the second Adam from above, the only man ever without sin. He is the word of God from the beginning. He is the wisdom of God with him from forever. This is God. The word was in the beginning In the beginning was the Word, John says, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He made everything. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. But there's more. Because this Word that God spoke in the very beginning, desiring to make nothings into the very children of God, was spoken into the darkness. In him, John writes, verses 4 and 5, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. As we mentioned earlier, you'll note that the very first thing that God made in Genesis, that Jesus made in Genesis, was light. Let there be light, said God, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Significant when you step back to Genesis to note that the very first thing, now think of this, the very first thing that God created was light. There were no stars. There was no sun. There was no moon. God spoke light into existence prior to any physical, visible source of light. It was entirely independent of any of the ordinary physical sources, a glimpse, really, of the beginning of the glory of God, his character on display. God lit the world by his word alone. Literally, by the word of God, he illumined the world from the beginning. And now John says, this word lights our world. To understand this, we need to remember a little bit of what kind of light this is and step back further into the creation account. In Genesis chapter 2, if you want to turn back there, We're back and forth between Genesis and John this morning because of the close parallels. 
between these two passages. In, in chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, Moses writes, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, was watering the whole face of the ground, then, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. If you look back through Genesis chapter 1, you'll find that this is an absolutely unique demonstration of God's creative ability. Everything else that was created, without exception, was created simply by the statement of God, his speech. He created, he spoke, and it came to be. In fact, that's what you find over and over the, uh, the way that Moses wrote it. For example, in verse 9 of chapter 1, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. It just happened. God said, this is what must happen, and it did, because he's God. And so out of nothing, he made all the visible things that we can see. But here when he comes to man, he makes him in a little different way. He literally stoops in the dust, makes the man and then breathes life into him. This makes more sense of what John is saying in John chapter 1. Listen to what he says in verse 4. It's a verse that could be a bit confusing if we don't grasp the full concept of what's taking place in the parallels with Genesis. He says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So, quick quiz, what's the life? The light, right? And the light, and the, uh, and the life is the light. The, Jesus is the life. He's the light of men by that life. So where every other living thing was made by G God simply speaking, by Jesus speaking, in the creation of man, we find that God's speech, the word who was in the beginning, who was the creator, breathed into the nostrils of man and conveyed to him the light of understanding, which is not present in any other living thing. Man, by this very act, was made in the image of God. Made in the image of God. John Calvin helps us a little bit here. He says the, that he, John, speaks here of that part of life in which men excel animals and informs us that the life which was bestowed on men was not of an ordinary description, but was united to the light of understanding. So the word from the beginning is the only source of understanding. He's not just light like it's light outside. He's not just light like that which we have coming from the sun. He is light in understanding. He's the one who breathed into man that illumining light by which he's identified as the image of God. Man was made to be, really, in this very act of God, the visible representation of the character of God. He was made, we were made, to put the attributes of God on display, to manifest the glory of God through a life that is lived in light. John goes on to say, the light of God's life, the word, shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. This is more amazing yet when you remember 
what happened immediately after the creation. Very shortly, something else entered the world. And that, the end of the world was dark. And it's called sin. Man fell. But the darkness, John tells us, did not overcome the light. The image of God in man, the, the light of man's understanding was fatally marred, and now men preferred darkness to light. Remember the Adam and Eve hid in the garden? It looked like darkness had won. But the context into which John speaks is even more helpful. Because there is, of course, the first sin that entered the world. But John's context, the people to whom John was writing, would have remembered that there was another time when it looked like the darkness was going to win. God made a promise in Genesis 3.15, by the way, that there would come a time when this word would be spoken into the world again, when the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. But it looked like the darkness was winning at the end of the book of John. So John's making an end run right here in the very beginning, to let us know that darkness will not win. But for three terrible hours while Jesus hung on the cross, darkness fell across the land and it looked like the darkness was winning. For three terrible days while Jesus' body lay in the tomb, it looked like the darkness had snuffed out the light. That the word, the very word from the beginning had ceased to speak. And the hope of the disciples died within them. So, John starts this Christmas story by going all the way to the resurrection. The life could not remain dead. The light could not be put out. The word that breathed life into man would breathe again. This time, for the first time since time began, he breathed out at gale force. Death is swallowed up in victory. And we hear that beginning right here in John chapter 1. So, the light of the world is really the only true light. That's the emphasis that we find in verses 6 through 8 of John 1. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So here we catch a piece of the Christmas story of John the baptizer who came first and showed people who Jesus was. Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. But this light of John was merely a witnessing light. This was merely one who is pointing the way to the, the one who is the only true light. His witness in no way added to what Jesus was or made his light any brighter. Really, it's the way it is for us, too. When we think what we think of the light, whether we like it or don't like it, does not in any way detract from or add to his glory. He just is who he is, and who he is is light. I've often told my kids, we have a barn that's about 32 feet high at the peak. I've said if you jump off the barn, you can believe in gravity, or you can not believe in gravity, but the results when you hit the bottom will be the same. And that's the way it is with all truth. And with Jesus' truth in particular, you can believe the truth or you cannot believe the truth. You can believe that Jesus is the light or you cannot believe that he's the light. You can love darkness and hate light, but the results will be the same. Truth isn't waiting for us to ratify it. 
so that it becomes effective or goes into play. The truth is simply the truth. The word of God, the light of the word, is really the only true light. John didn't add something by what he did. He simply pointed us who the true light really was. And then the light of the world was not received, we see in the next few verses, verses 9 through 11. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world, John writes. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Interesting, if you were to look at this a little more closely, you notice that it says in verse 11, he came to his own, and you could add by interpretation, his own things. He came to his own things, but his own people did not receive him. This is an important distinction, because let me ask you, did the creation receive the creator when he came? When the word was spoken to the darkness of this world, did the creation know who he was? Well, we have some interesting testimonies, right? So at, in Mark 4, we find that Jesus is asleep in the terrible storm at sea. The disciples are panicked. And this is what they say. Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And it took a long time, and it was a really rough go of it, but they finally made it. No. No, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Did the creation know who he was? Yeah. In Matthew chapter 14, we find Jesus is in another storm. He's this time on the open water, and he's, yeah, he's walking on the water in a terrible storm. The disciples are panicked again, but he's treading on that water as firmly as if he's walking on the sidewalk in front of this church. There is no trouble, and he says to his disciples, panicked as they were, take heart, it's I, do not be afraid. Did the creation know him? Yeah, and it obeyed him. In Luke 19, we find one of the most interesting references to the creation knowing the creator. Jesus is making his triumphal entry into the city on the back of a colt. And the people are crying out. This is what they're saying. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Very similar to what happens in the beginning of the Christmas story. The multitude is crying this out. The disciples, or the Pharisees, are, are pretty worked up about this. This is not going well with them. They're disturbed. And they tell Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Do you remember what Jesus said to them? I tell you, he said, if these, these what? People were silent. The very stones would cry out. Did creation know him? Yeah. Creation knew him, but his own people rejected him. Jesus is, in every way, the Lord of his creation. But the people, John chapter 3 goes on to tell us, loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. So the word spoken in the darkness was received by the creation, but was rejected by the people to whom the word came well, by most of those people, but not all of them. Because the word spoken in the darkness transforms any who believe on him. That's what verses 12 and 13 say. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, 
nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The one link, the one link between us and life in God is, from our side of things, really very, very simple. Have we heard and believed the word of God? Have we received the testimony of Jesus alone, that he is the only way to the Father? When I was a child, when I was a little boy, I struggled with a lot of doubts. And in some of those doubting times, I remember thinking about the possibility of trying to satisfy the requirements of a variety of different religions in order to make sure that I got everything dialed in just right and I would at last one day come to God. But Jesus leaves no such option open. We can't be partly Buddhist, partly Hindu, partly Muslim, Muslim, partly Christian. Christianity, as described by Jesus, is absolutely exclusive. We believe in him alone. We cling to hope in no other source, or we cannot be a Christian. Christianity, according to John, is all Jesus, or it's nothing. There is no other light in any other source, only darkness. So the word was in the beginning, John tells us, and then the word as he spoke was in that darkness light, but something yet more amazing, he tells us in the next verses, in verse 14 and following, he tells us that the word came in the flesh. Listen to what verse 14 says. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. Alexander McLaren said of these words. The word became flesh. He says these four words are the foundation of all our knowledge of God. Of man. Of the relations between them. The foundation of all our hopes. The guarantee of all our peace. The pledge of all our blessedness. He tabernacled among us. In other words, he came and lived with us. This God who made everything, who was before time even began, who conceived the idea of a world in the first place, this God came to live with us. He took upon him the weaknesses, the difficulties, the challenges of being in a body like we have. He knew what it was to suffer. He understood what it was like to be tempted. We have a God who has come to live with us. We sang just a little bit ago about Emmanuel, God with us. That's what John is talking about right here. This is God with us, God in the flesh. It's one thing to have a God who reaches from across the galaxies to help us in our time of need. That's a great thing. That's a wonderful God to have. But he's more than that. Because this God did not simply reach across, barely deigning to touch us in our infirmities, barely willing to reach across the barrier of our sin. No, he came and tabernacled among us. He came and lived with us. He dwelt with us. He took upon him flesh and dwelt among us. So God is not just some distant 
disconnected idea, a great all devoid of personality. He is the highest expression of personality. He's knowable, and he speaks his word to make himself known. He reveals himself to us. He lives among us as the very word of God. Hebrews chapter 1 says that in these last days, he has spoken to us, God has spoken to us by his son. It was a great thing for God to speak to us by prophets. It's a great thing, Psalm 19, to understand the creation from the creation that God is a glorious God and full of power. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, the one who perfectly demonstrates and exegetes the word of the Father. The word of a person can be spoken only by that person, and Jesus is that word of God. In Hebrews chapter 10, we find we're taken back to Psalm 40 in a quote. And in Psalm 40, we see the pre-Christmas story, really. We see what's happening behind the scenes. We, we take the story from the time that the angel appears to Mary, and we, we hear what's taking place as, as uh, Mary anticipates the birth of this baby. We see the manger. We imagine and fabricate a variety of things that go around all of that as well. But in Psalm 40 and in Hebrews chapter 10, we find what's happening in heaven. This is what it says. When Jesus, in a sense, stood on the threshold of heaven, prepared to depart, and this is what he said, sacrifices, Jesus says, and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I, Jesus, said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it, as it is written of me in the book. When Jesus said, I have come to do your will, O God, what was he saying? I take upon me this body, a body which can suffer and die. What a desire. What a desire that Jesus had, that was pleased to please the Father, though it meant the loss of everything. That the light should, for a moment, appear to be snuffed out by the darkness. That the life should, for a few terrible days, appear, should have died. That the word spoken should be drowned out for a few moments by the roar of angry men crying, crucify him. That's what was happening as Jesus, in a sense, stood on the threshold of heaven and said, a body you've prepared for me. Do you catch the language of this, this passage here? It's sacrifice language. The body that Jesus had prepared for him was a body that was prepared for an offering. When Jesus came in the flesh, we think cuddly pictures of babies and warm pictures of mothers holding them close. Jesus thought of a sacrifice. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he was full of grace and truth. He pleased to please his father at any cost. And his father was pleased to make him a guilt offering on our behalf. Really, there was no better way to show us the father, no better way to make us know grace and truth. In verses 15 through 17, we see John 
bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I spake. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This eternal God who was with God in the beginning, who was himself God in the flesh, was born after John, the baptizer. But he was before John. And out of the infinite depths of his grace, he's now lavished upon us grace upon grace upon grace. In John 1.18, John concludes this section with these words, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You want to know what God looks like? You wonder what he would do in a situation? You wonder how he would act if he were in your place? You have no further to look than the word made flesh who dwells among us and shows us who the Father really is. John and Peter and James had seen Jesus' glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And John opens his account with a reminiscence about that, saying, this is God. So because the word was made flesh, we know God. We stand in a sense with John and we see his glory. We hear the life-giving word. And we receive grace. Where justice is certainly due, we stand in the shadow of the cross and watch God's wrath fall on his own sinless son and stop. There's no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. There's nothing too great because of his grace for God to forgive. You might have some things you're thinking about that seem pretty great for God to forgive. The wrath stopped at the cross. If you, if you stand beneath it and believe on his name. We receive through Jesus grace upon grace. Grace received, this is exciting, grace received, grace upon grace. Grace received never diminishes grace's supply. You can receive grace and receive grace and receive grace and it never makes the supply of grace any smaller it would be a little bit like supposing that I could somehow reduce the supply of the Nooksack River by dipping into it with my teaspoon. The Nooksack is fed by the Great Cascade Range drainage. But even the Cascade Range drainage is finite. It does have an end. The Nooksack, as seemingly limitless, especially at this time of year, as it, as it appears to be, is limited. There are just only so many gallons that are going to flow down the Nooksack River. But God's grace never diminishes. You may take it by the bucket. You may take it freely. You may take it over and over and over. And when you think you've exhausted God's supply of mercy and love for you, you've only begun to drink of his love and grace and mercy. Through Jesus, God in the flesh, through this word made flesh, we have access to the infinite supply of God's grace. Grace upon grace through him. That's really what the incarnation means to us, that God has shown us in Jesus just how immeasurable his grace and kindness really are. No one has ever seen God, but Jesus, the word, the life, the light, has made him known. That's, that's the story of Christmas from John's perspective. 
really this passage leaves us with a very simple question. John says in 1.12 of, of this chapter, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, he gave the right to become the children of God. The question this passage leaves is simply this. Have I received him and believed on his name? The answer to that question is the one connection, the single connection between me and you and the unlimited grace of God. Near the close of his epistle, in chapter 20 of John, John writes and tells us why he wrote the whole book. And this is what he says. Now Jesus, in verse 30 of chapter 20, did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We hear that in John 1. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So what does it mean to receive and believe? The context helps us with that. Remember that it's identified Jesus as the light in the darkness. What do you have to do to receive light? You just don't shut your eyes in order to keep out that light's life-giving radiance. To see Jesus really leads us to believe that he is who he said he is and that he will do what he says he will do. In Hebrews 11.6, we're given that description of faith, that we're told that God, that's what God requires. The one thing God requires is that we believe that he is and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. That's what we're hearing here. To receive him simply means that I believe that he is who he said he is and that he will reward those who seek him, that he will do what he says he'll do. He is who he says he is. He will do what he says he will do. Whoever would draw near to God must believe simply that, that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. So when we see God in Jesus, we experience a new beginning. Remember, it's all about a beginning. But this is a new beginning. And we get to experience the second creation as the word spoken makes us into the very children of God. We are created anew. We're made the recipients of God's boundless grace. It's hard in the dark. It's hard to struggle along in the dark. Years ago, when I was, again, when I was a boy, we had a little habit of um, when we'd go to bed at night, and it was dark, we would um, shout out from the bedroom, my brothers and I, to my parents, and we had a little ritual of, here's, here's how it went. You can laugh, because it was a silly ritual, but we said, good night, love you, see you in the morning, don't forget your prayers, beep, beep, honk. And we said it every night. I can still remember it. Good night, love you, see you in the morning, don't forget your prayers, beep, beep, honk. And back from the bedroom, my parents would answer. It was really a symmetry with the beginning of our day when my dad would get up, and he always got us up with him early in the morning, in the dark, oftentimes, and he would get out into his 1967 Volkswagen Squareback, little red Squareback, and head off to McClellan Air Force Base where he worked, and he would honk as he would leave. We lived out in the country. We didn't drive our neighbors crazy. And uh, he'd honk as he would leave, and we would shout back, beep, beep, honk. You know, there's a great reassurance to having a voice in the dark. It's really nice to have someone talk to you when you might be a little bit afraid. 
it's even better when they come and live with you. When they come and stay right beside you and when they turn on the light. When Jesus came, he came, God, from the very beginning, he came to turn on the light. What's required? That you believe him and receive him. That's really the Christmas story from John's perspective. It's from the point of view of eternity. The word was in the beginning. The word shone in the darkness. The word became flesh and made his home with us in Jesus. God spoke to us his last best word by believing in him. That he is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. We have life in his name. So in a sense... God stoops again to the dust, this time not to fashion a man, but to become a man, so that as a man he might break for us the stranglehold of death, dying our death to offer us life, shining in our darkness to turn on the light, dwelling in the flesh to take our hand and lead us to lead us to the Father. John presents God the creating word, doing something more astounding than breathing life into dust. God, the creator, makes a new creation, turning nothings into the children of God. That's John 1, 1 through 18. That's what Christmas is all about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this morning for the great mercy that you've shown to us through the living word who's come, turned on the light, and dwelt among us, who takes us by the hand and leads us to the Father. Oh, Father, would you help us to receive and believe on the Lord Jesus, to open our eyes, not to shut the light out, but to believe on him, not choosing our own darkness, not choosing our own way, not choosing our own iniquity but following him. We give you great thanks and praise for the flesh of God, God in the flesh, dwelling among us, making us to see God in Jesus' name.